Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. like to think that I'm a relatively intelligent man. Uh, however, I often miss the obvious. Uh, case in point, my glasses. If you have glasses and you have small children with seemingly endlessly grubby hands, you know that your glasses are just going to get smudged all the time. So often when I get home from work, or if I'm in the middle of doing something at home, I'll take my glasses off, put them on a bookshelf, uh, and then they vanish, and I don't know where they are. Uh, sometimes kids have moved them, sometimes I've just forgot where I put them. So uh, often I'll find myself running around the house and I'm checking bookcases, bedside tables, shelves, I'm going back into the car, looking all over for my glasses. And the really, the really embarrassing moments for me is when I, I'm really worked up, I'm frustrated and I'm short and I'm kind of snapping at Janine and saying, hey, have you seen my glasses? She said, they're on your head. And they're like <laughs> this. Very embarrassing. Unfortunately, it's not the only time that I've behaved like that in my life. Have you ever lost your phone and you're looking for your phone, it's in your pocket or something? Pastor Brian told me this week that one time he lost his phone in the dark, so he put the flashlight on and was looking for his phone with the flashlight on his phone. That's right. Andrew's stupid, but Pastor Brian, yeah. Um, And then keys. Keys are another one, right? You put keys down somewhere and somehow they disappear and then usually they're on your belt jingling, so... Yeah, I miss the obvious quite a lot. And really, the Gospel of Mark is a story about people who seem to miss the obvious a lot. And it would be easy for me to judge these people who seem to struggle with understanding who Jesus is, but really, when I think about it, I'm a lot like them. Right? Just like the people we read about, even today, we still struggle with the question of who is Jesus, don't we? We hear these amazing stories about the things that he did, and we, we read how he healed people, how he fed people, how he died, how he rose again, and we still question in our hearts, who then is this? Who is he? And what am I supposed to do with him? How am I supposed to go to this Jesus? Well, today we're going to read a part of Mark's gospel where Jesus tries to help people see the obvious one more time. And it's one of my favorite stories. It's a story that you probably have heard before, a story of Jesus walking on water. And this story has a lot of obvious moments in it that people miss. And I hope this morning that as we look through it, that we would let our attention focus on the king who's walking on the water, that he might show us who he is. So let's read this together. This is Mark 6, verses 45 through 52. This is what God's word says. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken lead of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. There's three moments in this little account where Jesus helps us to see who he is, how he helps the disciples to see who he is. 
Those three moments are this. We see the king who sends us, the king who sees us, and the king who saves us. And I want to look at those together. But before I do, I just want to pray together as a church family that we would see, that God would give us eyes to see. So let's pray just one more time as we read this. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that's living and active, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that pierces us to the deepest places of who we are, but it also helps us see. And God, I pray that you, by your spirit, would do the work this morning, that even as we read this together and consider this together, that you would speak and help us to see that you have seen us and you'd help us to see you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about the king who sends us, the king who sends us. Now, I, uh, usually all my stories revolve around me being in some way unathletic or nerdy, uh, and so it's no different this morning. Uh, I once entered something called the Urban Warrior Dash. Uh, do any of you guys heard of this? Sometimes they call them Spartan races, but essentially what it is is it's a three-mile uh, run, and your job is to do the three-mile run while also making over various obstacles. Now, when I saw pictures of it and I saw cargo nets and Cars that looked like a scene out of Terminator or something. I was like, yeah, this looks cool. I want to do this. Climbing over cars and cargo nets. So I, I signed up for the rate. My wife was very proud of me. Uh, and so I go, was in downtown Chicago. We go downtown. I start running. And within about five minutes, I deeply regret my decision to enter that race. <laughs> it was really the fun. The, the first car that you go under or climb over the top of, it was fun. And then you start the heavy breathing. You feel that kind of rounded gut that is sagging on your midsection, and you realize, I probably shouldn't have done this. This is too much. Thankfully, I made it to the end without dying. Uh, it was God's grace, uh, and my wife did respect me for a short amount of time before I uh, stopped doing any more Evan <laughs> Warrior dashes. But the disciples, a little bit like me, they often find themselves getting into situations that they're really excited about at the start, and then they find that it's not quite what they expected. And that following Jesus, even though it seems thrilling and exciting and full of joy, and it is, it's also full of moments that are really hard. Really hard. Sometimes even frightening. And so the disciples find themselves in this spot today where they're in distress. This is how this story starts. And I want to set it up by going back just a little bit. Because what we're reading today follows on immediately from the feeding of the 5,000. So if we go back to verse 42, we're finishing that story there. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, in that moment, as that was finishing, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. Jesus has just reached a new level of success in his ministry. I mean, this is by far one of the greatest miracles that Jesus did. It's recorded in all four Gospels. It is something that even if you've never set foot in a church, you've probably heard of in some way. And so Jesus is at a new level of fame. And and consider this, there was over 5,000 people present at that. It was only 5,000 men, which means it was probably close to somewhere between 10 to 15,000 people when you consider all the women and children were there. And they all saw Jesus do the impossible. It was unquestionably impossible. So there's chaos, there's all kinds of excitement, there's hope, people are seeing Jesus in new light. And then even as that's all going on, Jesus says, okay, disciples, I need you to go, I need you to move on, get in the boat, head over the lake, and then Jesus himself leaves as well and goes up on a mountain to pray. 
Because Jesus knows that outward impressions can be very deceiving. And even though this moment, probably to everyone other than Jesus, seemed like the pinnacle of ministry, to Jesus he knew there was more work to be done. That what was visible on the outside wasn't necessarily reflective of what was going on in the hearts of the crowd and in the hearts of his disciples. John's gospel helps us understand maybe what Jesus was seeing a little better. If we go to John's gospel, in his account of the feeding of the 5,000, he tells us at the end of that account, in John 6, 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And this is a similar episode to other accounts of Jesus' life, like in Luke's gospel where it tells us, now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Isn't that interesting? In moments of seemingly great success and people seeing him the way that maybe we think Jesus should be seen. I mean, they're calling him a king. The crowds around him at the feeding of the 5,000, they said, let's take him by force and make him king. And isn't, isn't Jesus really king? Isn't that why we call this series Following the King because he's king? But Jesus sees something that we don't. These people don't yet understand who he is. They're using the name king, but they don't understand what that means. And the proof of that is they're trying to take him by force because they've seen someone who can do impossible things and they want to fit him into their box. So let's take him by force and force him to serve our perceived needs and our perceived problems and we'll make him do what we think he needs to do. But friends, Jesus has not come to do what we think he needs to do. He's come to do what we actually need him to do. And those two things are very different, very often. What we think we need him to be and what we think we need him to do can be very, very different from what we actually need him to do for us. So Jesus leaves that crowd because he knows they don't see me yet and they need to see me. So he goes up on a mountain to pray, to pray about what's next. How will God be revealed next? What miracle is gonna follow this one? Imagine the disciples in this moment, they just want to take a breather. If we think through that story from uh, the earlier part of Mark 6 again, we're told that the crowd that Jesus feeds, they come to him while he and the disciples are trying to find rest. They're trying to find a break. It's been crazy. It's been amazing. And crowds come and Jesus sees them like a sheep without a shepherd. And so he has compassion. And so instead of taking a rest, he starts feeding them. And that goes on all day, late into the night. To the point where it's getting so late, the disciples say, hey, you've got to send them away. And that's how the feeding happens in the first place. But when that gets done, think about how much more late it is. And Jesus still doesn't give his disciples a break. He still doesn't tell them, okay, let's, now let's find some space. He says, immediately, I need you to get in the boat. And actually, the, the Greek of, of this part of the Bible actually says he compels them. It wasn't just that he was making a suggestion or a request. He was saying, get in the boat and go. There's more to do. They probably would have been exhausted, tired. So can't we just settle? Didn't we just, I mean, didn't you see what just happened, Jesus, what you just did? Don't settle for great moments in your life. Don't have one experience with God that looks amazing and then say, okay, that's enough. Say, no, I want more. Because Jesus wants more for you. Jesus wants more for you than you want for yourself. 
And so he's going to send you in a boat. He's going to put you in a boat, and he's going to say, keep going. Don't rest. There's more. You haven't even seen the half of it yet. We need to be hungrier for a deeper revelation of God and a deeper understanding of the person of Jesus. We need to be constantly asking him to show us that. Whether you're tired or content, whether you're frustrated or joyful, whether you are doubting or confident, ask God, what do you want to show me about who you are? Where are you in the circumstances of my life right now? And what are you showing me? Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, God has plans to reveal himself to you. He has plans to reveal himself to you. And I think really for Chapel Street North Aurora, this is a personal question for us. This is a meaningful question for us because it has been a really great month since we opened our doors. Some exciting things, some fun things. I know that I've been deeply encouraged every week sharing worship with you and dreaming about what's next, but God has more for us. And we should never settle. We shouldn't say, okay, now we've got a building and we've got a great band and the speaker's occasionally okay. Like, we should be saying, Jesus, what's next? What is it you're trying to show me about who you are? Who are the neighbors that we haven't seen yet that you see? And the circumstances around us that we feel uncomfortable with or afraid of that you want us to press into? The king is sending us because he's clearly got something in mind for us. So let's talk about the king who sees us. The king who sees us. Now Jesus, he sends these disciples across the sea and it very quickly turns into a stressful situation for them. And it reminds me uh, of one of my favorite YouTube videos that I would like to share with you so that we can all have a little bit more of an understanding of what it felt like to be one of the disciples in this moment. Let's take a look at this. That's what it felt like to be a disciple in the boat, halfway across the sea in the middle of the night, storms raging and you can't make any progress. Maybe not so happy with Jesus right now. Here's what we're told, Mark 6, 47 through 48. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he, Jesus, he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully. Sometimes that word painfully there is... is Translated in torment. They were making headway in torment, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So let me set the scene for you. We have got the disciples halfway across the Sea of Galilee, maybe a couple of miles from shore. Uh, the fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So dead of night, dark, pitch black. Remember, we're living in a time in history, there's no extra lightning, you've got the stars and the moon, and that's it. And apparently, some of those weren't even visible because it's the middle of a storm. There would have been mist rising from the sea. It would have been horrible conditions. And specifically, we're told that they're making headway painfully. And what would have happened is, because the wind is against them, they wouldn't have been able to use their sails, so they would have pulled those down, and all of the disciples would have had to row as hard as they can to try and press against the wind that was pushing them backwards. Miserable. Miserable conditions. The disciples were totally stuck. They knew they had something to do. They knew they had to get somewhere, but they were totally stuck. You ever felt like that? Felt like you just stuck? 
You're not making any headway. You're not moving forward. There's no growth in your life. Circumstances in your life aren't changing. Things don't seem to be getting better. I don't know about you, but when I've been in circumstances like that, I look upward at heaven and say, God, what is the purpose of this moment? What are you doing? Why did you ask me to be here? Why did you send me to this place? Because Jesus did send them here. Jesus expressly asked them to go to where they were. Charles Spurgeon, when he's talking about this passage, he says, their sailing was not merely under his sanction, Jesus's, but by his express command. And that means that they were in the right place, yet they were met with a terrible storm. The right place doesn't always look like the right place. Doesn't always look like the right place. Doesn't look like how we would imagine it to be. And really, this is very important. We can't rush too quickly past it because what's happening in this moment is confronting one of the worst things that we can believe about God, which is he will only send us to comfortable, safe, pleasant places. He won't. In fact, more often than not, Jesus, if you want to follow him, he's going to ask you to go to places that are uncomfortable, that are tiring, that are challenging, that will stretch you. And you want to know why he does that? This king who wants you to love him and follow him, do you know why he would ask you intentionally to go to a place like that? It's because only when you come to the end of yourself will you see who he is. Only when you have reached that place where you can't rely on your own confidence, you can't rely on your own strength, you can't rely on your own wisdom, only when you reach that place will you look upward and say, I need his. Because I don't have it. Jesus loves every single one of us in this room so much that he will risk us thinking less of him so that he can get us to a place where he can do his work. You understand the humility that's involved in that, that God knowingly puts you in circumstances where you will be less inclined to love him back so that he can do what's good for you. That's a good father. That's a good father. So here are the disciples struggling to fulfill what Jesus asked. And where is Jesus? He's watching it back on land. Now just pause for a minute to try and consider what it looks like for Jesus to see this. It's pitch black. There's a storm going on. They're probably a couple of miles out at least into the Sea of Galilee. How in the world can Jesus see them? You ever thought about that? This was not preferable conditions for him to see them. This should have been invisible. They should have been lost to everyone. And yet Jesus Christ can see them. Sees them. Mark's helping us to see who Jesus is. He's the one who sees us. Even when he shouldn't be able to see us. Even when we're struggling and we feel invisible, he can see us. In the Old Testament, God is given a name by a woman, uh, which means the God who sees us, El Roy. It's by a woman called Hagar. And Hagar, if you don't know her story, she's from the book of Genesis, and she was a woman that was very hard done by, abused, forgotten, neglected, uncared for. And as a result of all that torment in her life, she ran out into the wilderness with her son, and she felt like no one cared for her, no one saw her. She was lost. And God himself in the wilderness appears to Hagar, he says, I see you, Hagar. 
I know they don't, but I do. And so she replies this way. She says in Genesis 16, 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. He says, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. El Rui, the God who sees in Hebrew. Do you believe that God sees you? That your life matters to him? That it's significant to him? That it's valuable to him? That you are no less in his eyes than anyone else who has ever walked the face of this planet? I'm willing to bet there's at least a few in this room, and often I'm one of them, who don't believe that. That's why this story is so important. Because it's true. Because we need to be reminded he sees us. And we also need to be like Jesus in this respect and see other people around us that are in head and in pain. We need to listen to their stories. We need to see them. Because if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to be people who see. Whatever distress you find yourself in, you are not invisible to God. You're not invisible to him. We told here about the disciples crying out. Remember the last time they were on a boat in a storm, Jesus was with them, taking a nap. And so they wake him up and they say, don't you care about this? I'm going to die. Maybe it was a little bit the same. Maybe they're asking themselves, gosh, how many times are we going to be in this place? How many times is Jesus going to send us into a situation where we have to fear for our lives and we have to be exhausted and wiped out? But what's Jesus doing? He sees them, and then he immediately starts moving towards them. As soon as he sees their distress and their struggle and their torment, he moves. Not the disciples, he does. Because he's not just a God who sees, he's a God who cares. And he comes to them in the most miraculous way. He walks across the sea on the surface of the water. Amazing. Once again, proving that he's God, that he's Lord of creation. Now, some people in uh, history have attempted to explain away a lot of the miracles. We heard a little bit of that last week with the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe Jesus was secretly handing loaves from a cave behind him through his sleeves. And equally, people have come up with explanations of this. They've suggested that perhaps there was a sandbar running through the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus, miraculously, in the pitch black of night, knew exactly where the sandbar was and just kind of strolled along it. Once again, I think that that's harder to believe than it's just that he's God. So, but we have to see the, the astounding nature of this moment. That here comes God himself walking on the surface of the water in a storm towards us. God moving towards us. God's always moving towards you. Doesn't matter how sinful you are, how broken you are how forgotten you feel. God's moving towards you in one way or another. It's who he is. He can't behold you. He can't look on you and not be compelled to move towards you because he's love, because he's grace incarnate. And sometimes we expend so much energy trying to move ourselves towards God. I'll, I'll go to church more. I'll read my Bible more. I'll pray more. I'll serve more. I'll do more. And I'll, I'll try and buy his attention as an affection. If I can just be enough and do enough, then he'll take notice of me. I won't be invisible anymore and I can reach him. But God is not a man like you or I who requires that people do enough before he'll move towards us. 
He's not some politician or earthly king that you have to call up and beg for attention and beg for care and beg for representation. Jesus sees you before you see yourself and he moves towards you, moving across the waters. So let me ask you this morning, what are the ways right now that God's moving towards you? Look in your life and be careful not to miss them. Just take a few moments to quietly think Is there a friend who's been reaching out to you that you've been ignoring? Is there an opportunity that you've been having to gather with others and to share your burdens with them and hear from them that you've been hesitant to go to? Maybe it's as simple as the Bible's been left on your bedside table and you just haven't looked through the words of God in a while. And if you were to just open it, you'd see God's moving towards you because he is. He's the God who moves towards you to address your distress, and he's the king who saves you, the king who saves you. The end of the story comes like this. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And this is a little bit of a strange ending, because there's, there's things that are said in that last few verses that seemingly don't fit. First of all, he meant to pass by them, which is a little funny when you imagine it. Did it look like he was just kind of strolling along, just waving as they were crying and sweating. I don't think that that's what that means. I think this is one of the moments where Mark, as he's writing his gospel, and he's recording probably what the apostle Peter is telling him, he is wanting to frame this moment so that those of us who are hearing it don't miss what he was intending to do. This isn't the first time in the Bible that we see the phrase, pass by them. We go to Exodus 33, and we read the story of Moses. Moses is uh, with God on the mountain, and he says, please show me your glory. Show me who you are, God. And God replies and says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. There's another account in the Old Testament as well where Elijah is in distress, he feels forgotten, he feels invisible, and God passes by him. Now, if that wasn't enough to convince us that there's some kind of line between there, the way that Jesus responds when he gets in the boat to his disciples, he says, take heart, it is I. And he uses a Greek phrase, ego in me. Ego in me is a very interesting phrase. There's two ways in Greek that you can say it's me. One is a me, and one is ego in me. Ego in me is very unique because it's the way that the Jewish people would describe the name of God. When Jesus appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he says, I am who I am. And from that moment on, the Jewish people saw that as a sacred name of God. It became Yahweh or Jehovah in Hebrew. And in Greek, it's ego in me. I am. Jesus, when he gets in the boat, could have said, don't be afraid, in me, it's me. 
He doesn't say that. He says, don't be afraid, ego in me. It's me. It's the I am. It's God. It's the Lord. Mark's not just trying to recount a story. He's trying to frame it for us. Jesus is asking the disciples to not be afraid because God is present right there in the boat with them. There's not just anyone coming to them. It's God. Essentially, this is what Jesus is saying to us. I see you. Do you see me? I see you in your distress and your pain and your struggle. Do you see me moving towards you? Not having forgotten about you? I see you. Do you see me? Whatever storm you find yourself in, Jesus has come to still it. He's moving towards you. He sees you in your distress. And even though right now I know you feel afraid and lost and tired, Jesus sees you and he's coming. He's present. It's a little bit terrifying, isn't it? Just like it was for the disciples. They see this figure moving in the mist and in the shadows coming towards them. Is it a ghost? Who is this? It's the Lord. It's good for us. And when he gets in that boat with us, when he gets into their world with them, the storm stops. Isn't that what all of us want? In turbulent times and in changing circumstances, don't we want our storm to be stilled? All we need to do is see him. Take notice of him. Really quickly, the last part of the story, which is very hard to hear, we're told that the disciples were utterly astounded for they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Why, why are we going back to the loaves? It seems like it doesn't really fit in this moment. See, the, the miracle of the loaves and fish, what Jesus had done there, it wasn't just about providing food. It was about helping people see who he was. John Piper says it this way, Jesus didn't come to give bread, he came to be bread. He came to him in himself be everything that people need. But the disciples didn't see that. They just saw miraculous provision of bread. They didn't see the one who was giving it to them, who is everything they need. And so in this moment, when we fast forward, they see Jesus coming to them, but they don't fully get it. They don't understand that behind all the amazing things that they're seeing, a man walking on water, they don't see the God who cares for them and loves them and who is in himself everything that they need. And that's the danger for us. The danger for us is that we can read these amazing accounts and be in awe of the power of them, but fail to see that behind the power, behind the gifts, behind all of those things is a God who sees you, who is moving towards you, and who can still your storm. When I first became a Christian, uh, growing up in England, I didn't have a lot of experience with the Bible. Uh, I didn't have a lot of Christian friends, and so I was trying to figure it all out. Uh, and I would read the Bible, and I would think, okay, this, what this is, this book, this is a manual on all the things I've got to do in order to be likable to God. If I do everything it tells me to, then he'll like me and, and I'll go to heaven one day. That's, that must be what Christianity is. 
It's a list of rules and expl- explanations of how I can be what God wants me to be. I was very, very wrong. And I hope if there's any part of that that you think, lovingly I want to tell you, you're very wrong. That's not what Christianity is. It's good news. Good news isn't something you do, it's something you hear and see. See, I heard the good news, but I didn't listen to it. In my heart, I was convinced that it was up to me, that I had to be worthy, that I had to fix myself, and I had to put myself together. And I didn't see the king who wanted to put me together. I didn't see the Lord of glory who loved me and wanted to heal me. I wish I could say, I grew and I went to seminary and now I don't deal with it anymore and now it's all good. I still doubt. I still doubt. Just this last Friday, I was having a conversation with Pastor John and I was telling him about all the ways right now that I just feel unqualified and not enough. I don't feel like I'm a good husband. I don't treat my wife the way that she deserves. I don't have a good temperament with her. I don't treat my kids the way that they deserve. And I start grading myself and see, God's probably grading me like this. He sees the way I treat my wife, my kids, my church, my community, and he's thinking, ugh, don't like that guy. I'm wrong. Praise God, I am so wrong about who Jesus is sometimes. Pastor John was gracious enough to remind me of the same thing that this passage reminds us. I come to Jesus not because I'm worthy, but because he is. Because he's moving towards me, loving me, serving me, humbling himself, belittling himself, and getting in my boat to be with me. So I want to encourage you this morning. He wants you to see him because he sees you. He wants you to sit still because he's moving towards you. And he wants you to know the peace that comes from when he he gets in your boat. Your job isn't to earn that or prove worthy of it. It's to let his love and his presence soften your heart so that you can see it and know it. He sees you. Do you see him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you see us. We live in a world where often we can feel so invisible, so unseen. We live in a culture now where it's, it gets harder and harder to truly live open lives with one another, share one another's burdens because people are so busy, so distracted, so lost. Yet in the midst of that storm, you see us. Father, draw near to us, we pray. Climb in our boat with us and help us have soft hearts to know you and see you. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.